You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of a collection of lectures, Collected Works, Volume 218, by Rudolf Steiner, entitled Spirit as Sculptor of the Human Organism. And it's a collection of 16 lectures given in Stuttgart, Dornach, The Hague, London, and Berlin in 1922, translated by Matthew Barton. Lecture 1. Is, was given in Stuttgart on the 9th of October, 1922. When people speak of the soul or psyche nowadays, they often use a particular phrase which acknowledges that in exploring this realm, one must speak of powers that do not enter ordinary awareness. At the same time, though, they admit their powerlessness in trying to do so. The phrase used to point tentatively toward this realm is, quote, the unconscious, close quote. In speaking today of the intrinsic nature of human knowledge, it is commonly suggested that we are initially obliged to seek this in the world around us through observation, experimentation, and a synthesis created by our reasoning faculty. But then also in turning their attention to their own consciousness, People speak of all kinds of inner content there, thoughts, feelings, impulses of will, and so on. In doing so, they become aware, furthermore, that things stir and surface in the psyche, whose deeper nature cannot be fathomed, either by using the usual methods of empirical science involving observation and combinative thinking, or through self-observation using the ordinary powers of awareness. Such attempts will not penetrate to the reality of these phenomena of soul life. For this reason they use the term the unconscious, and at the same time relinquish any possibility of penetrating this unconscious realm. In fact, it is entirely justified to relinquish such efforts if one limits oneself to the faculties of knowledge generally acknowledged today. Such faculties will not fathom the psyche further than to ascertain that during waking life thoughts, feelings, and will impulses rise up from our inner depths. Expressions of human nature which can easily be seen as connected with our outward corporeal nature. Using ordinary observation, it will not be possible to find any irrefutable way of showing that these phenomena, which seem initially to be so strongly dependent on bodily states, could have any distinct existence above and beyond them. Now, you all know that this specifically is the point of departure of our anthroposophical outlook, which is fully cognizant of the fact that commonly accepted modes of knowledge cannot fathom the depths of the psyche. Anthroposophy acknowledges 
that these ordinary modes of understanding are compelled to refer to an unconscious realm. Basically, it is not even necessary to consider the two thresholds of physical life on earth, birth and death, though we will do this in the next lecture, but only the ordinary state of sleep occurring in human beings day after day, and then we will inevitably find that soul experiences as ordinary modes of knowledge, observe them, seem to testify to the following. There appears to be such a great dependency of all ordinary conscious thinking, feeling and will on bodily states that it is perfectly legitimate to say that soul experiences rise up from these bodily states as if from an unconscious realm and that during sleep a merely organic life becomes rampant. Thus it does not appear that thoughts, feelings and will impulses have an intrinsic existence, and really there is no more to be said about it. At most, the way dreams play into our awareness makes it seem as if they arose from sleep and are simply recalled when we awake. And this fact might lead us to conclude that the psyche in some way continues to be active during sleep. But all these things are rather nebulous. Basically, a serious, unprejudiced observer drawing on the ordinary modes of knowledge will be able to say only that the soul reveals phenomena that seem very much dependent on bodily states. It is precisely because anthroposophical inquiry takes these capacities or incapacities of ordinary modes of knowledge seriously that it seeks at the same time to find other means of knowledge. And as you know, and as has often been described here, these other faculties of inquiry are those of imagination, inspiration, and intuition. These special modes of knowledge that first have to be developed as capacities from ordinary soul life by real effort can serve our endeavor to gain insight into things that are unavailable to ordinary faculties. And now, without going back over ground I have often covered, relating to the nature of the knowledge gained through imagination, inspiration, and intuition, I simply wish to draw on these three stages of knowledge to describe a very important aspect of the human subconscious or unconscious, that is, the realm of soul experience between falling asleep and waking up again. It is true that I have often described this from various perspectives, but today I'd like to do so again from a specific angle. First of all, therefore, I want to describe what imagination, inspiration and intuition perceive in the state of sleep. Ordinary consciousness, of course, knows only that the daily awareness we have while awake, with its diverse contents, is dulled and then extinguished when we fall asleep, giving rise to an unconscious state. In waking life, using only ordinary faculties, we cannot initially say what our psyche does while we are asleep. What occurs then, and in fact what occurs whenever the intrinsic nature of soul reality is experienced, does not enter ordinary consciousness. For ordinary awareness 
darkness spreads over what the soul experiences in sleep. But you see, sleep begins at the point when the faculty of imagination starts to brighten. The darkness starts to transform into a luminosity. And with this faculty of imagination, one can already start to gain insight into what the soul experiences in the initial stages of sleep. Drawing further on the faculties of inspiration and intuition, we can penetrate further into these experiences. You should not picture this as gazing into sleep as if into a peep-box show. Rather, through faculties of imagination, inspiration and intuition, we experience states of soul that resemble sleep inasmuch as within these states we have a similar relationship to our body as we do during sleep. The difference is that we no longer undergo this experience without awareness, but become fully aware of it. By virtue of experiencing things in full awareness while awake, in a way that resembles what happens during sleep, we then become able also to perceive what occurs with the human soul during sleep, and it becomes possible to describe this. It is a common experience, of course, that in falling asleep our consciousness, as it grows hazy and dim, can be filled with dreams. This dream world cannot initially offer us much help at all in perceiving the nature of soul life. You see, what we can know about dreams with our ordinary waking faculties remains something very superficial. Nor do dreams themselves appear in a way that would allow us to conclude anything specific from them, unless we have first gained insight into sleep by other means. Once we have gained real understanding of sleeping states, we will see that dreams tend to be misleading rather than offering illuminating guidance. In sleep the soul experiences things unconsciously, that since I am now drawing on faculties of imagination, inspiration and intuition, I will describe to you as if the soul were experiencing them consciously. I will describe to you what the soul experiences between falling asleep and waking up as if they were conscious experiences. They are not consciously experienced. But what I will describe is nevertheless experienced by the soul, albeit without awareness. It exists as reality, working into us, not just while we are asleep, but also above all working into our physical organism and acting there primarily while we are awake. When we wake up in the morning and until we fall asleep again, we bear within us the echoes of our experiences during the night. Whereas all that we accomplish in full awareness is very important for outward civilization, what occurs within us ourselves is scarcely dependent on our conscious awareness, but instead very much dependent on what we unconsciously experience while we are asleep. Once sensory perceptions have gradually faded and our will impulses cease to be active, we first experience an undifferentiated state of soul. 
This is a generalized, nebulous experience, informed by a clear sense of time, but also wholly devoid of a sense of space. This kind of experience can truly be compared with a sort of swimming, a moving around in a generalized, nebulous, universal substance. Really, one would have to coin new words to express what the soul experiences here. You can say that the soul experiences itself as a wave in a great ocean, though a wave that feels itself to be inwardly organized and surrounded everywhere by the rest of the ocean and feels the effects of this ocean upon it as during the day we feel color or tone impressions or states of warmth in a particular differentiated way and think about them. Unlike waking experience, however, when we feel ourselves to be a person enclosed in our skin and occupying a particular place, just after falling asleep, we feel, I'm describing this as if it were conscious, it's a reality, but we have no consciousness of it, like a wave in a general ocean, moving hither and thither with no defined sense of spatial conditions. A general sense of time does remain, though, but this experience is connected with another of forsakenness, as if we were sinking into an abyss. It is true, in fact, that without preparation, if we experienced this first stage of sleep consciously, we would be exposed to much that we would find quite unendurable. To lose our sense of space almost entirely, and live only in a generalized feeling of time, and to feel ourselves very undefined and incorporated into the generalized substance of an ocean. If we were conscious of this, we really would feel we were floating above an abyss. And this in turn is connected with something that surfaces in the soul as a huge need for support from the spirit, a huge need to be connected with a spiritual element. In this general ocean in which we swim, we have, you could say, you can say, lost all feeling of safety with which the waking world of material things endows us. And for this reason we feel, or rather would do if we were aware of it, a deep longing for connection with Divine Spirit. Really, we experience this generalized sense of moving in an undifferentiated, universal substance as being encompassed by Divine Spirit. Please, be aware of the way I have to express this, To repeat myself, I'm describing things as if the soul experienced them consciously. It does not do so. But you can understand that as you experience things consciously in daily life, certain things are simultaneously occurring in your organism that are simply realities. Let's say you experience joy. Yes, as this joy fills you, your blood pulses differently to how it does when you are sad. You experience the joy or sadness in your awareness, but not the pulsing of your blood. And yet this pulse is still a reality. In the same way when I am descri- what I am describing here as a generalized swimming in an undifferentiated universal substance on the one hand, 
and as an accompanying need for God on the other, corresponds to a reality in the life of the soul. And the faculty of imagination does nothing other than to raise this reality into awareness. Just as in ordinary waking life we can raise into our awareness the differentiated way in which our blood pulses in us in states of either joy or sadness. When we wake up in the morning, our organism has in fact been refreshed because our soul had the experience during the night that I have described. The after-effect of what occurs in the soul separated from the body during sleep is of great significance the following day for our waking life. We would not be able to use our body properly the next day if we had not lifted ourselves out of our connection with external physical things in order to immerse ourselves in this undefined experience that I described. And in waking life, the fact that something like an inner need arises to relate the differentiated world around us to something general and universal, to relate the sensory world to the divine, is an after-effect of this first stage of sleep. We might ask why human beings are not content in waking life to look upon the world's separate and diverse phenomena, why they are not content simply to pass through the world and take plants, animals and so forth as they come. Why do we begin to philosophize? And all do so, the most untutored people as well as the philosophers. And in passing, let's note that the untutored do this far better than the philosophers about how everything is interrelated. Why do we relate the isolated phenomenon before us to something universal? Asking how it is rooted in a universal context and cosmos. We would not do this if we did not immerse ourselves during sleep in this undefined existence. Nor would we develop any sense of the divine in our waking life if we did not pass through this sense of the divine during the first stage of our sleep. For our inner human experience, we really owe sleep something of great significance. As sleep continues, we enter other stages that can no longer be perceived by the faculty of imagination, but for which we now need that of inspiration. The reality of soul experience that arises here is reflected in inspired consciousness in the same way as, say, our pulse is reflected in joy and sorrow. And initially this reveals a certain fragmentation of the soul into a very great number of different aspects, separate entities. The psyche really does fragment its life into separate parts. And this fragmentation is connected with something which, if it shines up into our awareness, appears as anxiety. After the soul has undergone what we can call a hovering over the abyss or a swimming in generalized universal substance, accompanied by a longing for divine spirit, it succumbs to a certain anxiety, or rather to something that would be anxiety if we experienced it consciously. This is primarily due to the fact 
that the soul now not only swims in a general world substance, but is, as it were, immersed in separate soul-spiritual beings who have their own autonomous existence and with whom the soul now forms a kind of affinity. It is now, therefore, no longer a unity, really, but has become a multiplicity. This multiple state, though, is experienced as anxiety and is something we have to emerge from in a certain way. During the era of earth evolution prior to the mystery of Golgotha, mystery centers where the most diverse religions were practiced issued instructions for humanity. Receiving these, individual souls gained experiences and ideas of the divine as befitted the age they lived in. In addition to the feelings arising in them through the outer world of the senses, in these ancient times, human beings still retained some sense during the day of the spiritual world shining into their awareness. The further back we go in humanity's earthly evolution, the more we come to see that people had a kind of clairvoyance in very ancient times, and then later fading echoes of this clairvoyance. In those times they saw in inner vision that a human being dwelt as a being of soul and spirit in a pre-birth existence before he began his life on earth. This was not just a view they had developed, not something they merely believed in, but instead was something they retained from a pre-birth existence. Here's a trivial illustration of what I mean. When someone inherits a certain ability, or even just wealth, from his parents, he can recognize how this ability or wealth has a direct effect on his life. He knows that this gift is not something he had to acquire or develop, but that it came down to him from his forefathers. In the same way, in an earlier time, people knew that certain experiences in their soul did not originate in what their eyes had seen, but were a kind of inheritance from a pre-earthly existence. They recognized this from the very nature of these soul experiences. It is important to keep reiterating that humankind has evolved in a way that has freed it from such experiences of the soul. Our modern era is one when ordinary consciousness has no experiences that can be explained as inheritance from a pre-birth existence. Thus, people of those ancient times more easily accepted guidance from their spiritual leaders in the mystery centers as to what they should feel about their inner spiritual experiences. The strength that flowed to them as impulses emanating from the mystery centers was one that they carried out of ordinary waking life into their sleep at night, and this enabled them to remain steadfast in face of the anxiety I have described, and to overcome it. This anxiety rises up out of the depths of sleep life, and the strength needed to transform this anxiety so as to bring back to waking life not a general weariness of the organism, but a sense of fresh vigor was one that had first to be gathered 
the previous day during waking life. Our days and nights are interrelated. At a certain stage of sleep, the night brings us anxiety, and into this must pour the strength we have acquired from a religious or religious-type experience the day before. When these two things, the remainder of the day before and the night's primordial experience, unite, then a refreshing power streams into our organism during our waking life the next day. It is no longer tenable for a real science of the spirit to speak only in general abstract phrases of a universal divine element governing the world. It is not a viable way forward to describe the superficial appearance of things and say that universal guidance governs our sensory existence in general terms. Instead, spiritual science has to detail the actual tangible ways in which this divine governance acts. If we are to be equal to the tasks facing us as humanity evolves, we can no longer just say that we feel refreshed after a good night's sleep and receive this as a gift from God. We would have to despair of all science itself if we seek a rigorous scientific method in relation to the sensory world but are unable to extend the rigor of this science to the supersensible realm, instead tackling this latter domain with general phrases only, such as that divine powers govern the universe. We can delve ever further into definite realities, showing how the anxiety I have referred to appears at this second stage of sleep, in a sense mingled with the strength drawn from religious feeling cultivated the previous day, which works on into the night, and how from this in turn is drawn a power that refreshes and reinvigorates the physical organism the following day. By such means we increasingly gain insight into how real spirit lives within physical reality, and this is quite different from the modes of knowledge accepted today which have only a physical content and general turns of phrase about some kind of spirit indwelling or overlighting this physical content. Human culture will go on declining, though, if it does not extend the rigor practiced in observation of the outer world to the world of spirit, too. And now we can see, when we use the faculty of inspiration to study sleep, as it passes from the first to the second stage, that our inner soul experience becomes quite different from what it was during the day. Now, orthodox science can also show us, as long as we practice it rigorously, how we dwell in a soul element in the breathing process, in blood circulation, and in the nutritional process working through blood circulation. We can feel something occurring when we exert ourselves in movement and so forth. We can feel the soul and spirit's connection with physical processes. And if we describe respiration, say, or blood circulation, we know that this is informed by soul experience during our waking life. 
soul experience does not dwell in sensory perception during sleep, but is also a very specific kind of inner life. And in the same way that our inner life during waking hours can be related to respiration and blood circulation, so this nightly inner life is connected, as it turns out, with the inner elaboration of powers comparable to the vigor we acquire from breathing and blood circulation. It is an elaboration of powers that reflect the planetary motions in our solar system. Please note that I am not saying we dwell within planetary motions during sleep or are connected directly with them, but rather that we dwell in a kind of reflection or replica if you like, a miniature of our planetary cosmos or its movements. As our life of soul inhabits blood circulation during the day, so at night our soul life inhabits a replica of the planetary movements of our solar system. During the day we can say the white and red blood corpuscles circulate in us, and we gain vigor from the cycle of respiration through which we breathe in and out. At night, by contrast, we have to say that in our life of soul a replica of the movements of Mercury or Venus and Jupiter circulate in us. Thus from the moment we fall asleep to when we wake up, our soul life is in a sense a small planetary cosmos. From our personal human existence during the day, we pass into a cosmic existence at night. And the faculty of inspiration can discover that the powers that keep our blood pulsing during the day can, following our sense of tiredness in the evening, retain their vitality during the night through their own momentum and persistence but that in order for us to embark on new soul life the following day, we need the impetus received by experiencing a reflection of the planetary cosmos during the night. On awakening, the after-effect of what we experienced in these reflections of planetary movement at night is implanted or instilled in us. And this is what connects the cosmos with our individual life If this resonance of our nightly experiences was not present in us when we wake up in the morning, the powers we need could not stream into us in the right way to endow us with proper awareness. From this you can see that it is mistaken of some people to complain about chronic insomnia. Usually this is major self-deception. But I don't want to discuss this at present, since those subject to this illusion won't believe you. They think they really aren't asleep, whereas in fact their sleep is just abnormal. They believe their soul is not outside their body and fails to experience planetary existence. In fact, they are in a condition which, while dulled, nevertheless enables them to experience the same as anyone else does who sleeps well. But as I said, I don't want to discuss this right now. In general, it is true to say that we pass through a cosmic life during the second stage of sleep. As I said a moment ago, in ancient times prior to the mystery of Golgotha, mystery centers disseminated impulses that endowed people with the strength 
to overcome their anxiety, to resist fragmentation, and to undergo what was necessary in a healthy way. This strength was one enabling them to enter into an experience of the planets rather than to go on dwelling in that of fragmentation. Their anxiety originated in the passage through fragmentation, and their experience of being amongst the planets was vouchsafed to them by the strength they brought with them from their experience of the previous day. Since the mystery of Golgotha, and by directing their attention to the events of this mystery, people are now able to gain the power that was previously given them through the ancient mysteries. Anyone who experiences the mystery of Golgotha with the necessary inwardness of soul will find a strong guide in Christ at the moment when his soul enters the realm of anxiety during sleep. Thus in the Christ experience, modern humankind has what a more ancient humanity drew from the mysteries. Passing on from this stage of sleep I have just described, we then enter another, which, since I have dwelt longer on the planetary experience, I will describe to you now in a simpler way, hoping you will not take this amiss. Following an experience of the planets, we enter into an experience of the fixed stars. Having dwelt in a reflection of the planetary movements during the second stage of sleep, we now live in the constellations of the fixed stars, primarily in a kind of copy of the constellations of the fixed stars in the zodiac. This experience of the fixed star constellations of the zodiac is a very real one during the third stage of sleep. Here we also begin to experience a distinction between the sun as a planet and as a fixed star. Nowadays, people do not understand why the sun was regarded in ancient astronomy both as a planet and also as a fixed star. In the second stage of sleep, we really do experience the sun as possessing planetary attributes. Here we become aware of its very distinctive position in relation to human experience on earth. Then we also become aware of the sun as it relates to the other constellations thus the zodiac. In other words, we immerse ourselves in the cosmos in a still more intensive way than was true of the previous stage of sleep. We have an experience of the fixed stars, and arising from this we gain still deeper, more important impulses for our experiences the following day than is possible from the planetary experience alone. The planetary experience, if I may put it like this, fires our respiratory and circulatory processes. But the after-effect of the fixed star experience is what then during the day fires substance processes, ones imbued with the substance they require, so that they become ongoing processes of nutrition for the organism. Nutrients are impelled through the organism at apparently the most material level, though in fact this is reliant on powers higher than the mere movements of blood circulation. 
As physical human beings, our soul and spirit are dependent on the way in which different substances circulate in us. And this is connected, if I may put it like this, with the highest heavens. And with the fact that at this third stage of sleep, we feel after images of the fixed star constellations within our soul's spiritual nature. Just as when awake, we can feel our stomach or lungs within us. Just as, during the day, our body is an inwardly mobile, one filled with respiratory movements and circulatory movements, so in the night our soul, the substance of our soul, is something that has inner after-images of the planetary movements. And in the same way that we have the stomach, lungs and heart in us during the day, so at night we have the fixed star constellations which become our interior. In this third stage of sleep, therefore, we really become cosmic beings. This third stage of sleep is the deepest, and from it we gradually return to waking life. Why do we return? We would not do so if powers did not inform our soul and lead us back into our physical organism. I have described to you in many different ways how we can address these powers, and today I wish to do so from the cosmic perspective. Becoming aware of the fixed star experience through the faculty of intuition, we also become aware that the powers leading us back into our physical organism are moon powers, that is, the spiritual quality corresponding to what appears to us as the physical image of the moon. Naturally, this is irrespective of whether it happens to be full moon or some other quarter, for in spiritual terms, the moon can also shine through the earth. It does have something to do with the moon's visible metamorphoses, but this would lead us into far more subtle distinctions beyond the scope of today's considerations. Generally, one can say, that it is the moon's powers that lead us back again. You see, just as our soul is imbued by the planetary forces during sleep and by the forces manifesting in the constellations of the fixed stars, is imbued by these powers and remains so since these things go on working in our waking life, so we are also always imbued by the spiritual powers in the cosmos corresponding to the physical moon. These moon forces lead us back. In reality, the process involved is extremely complex. The following is one way to express it. If you stretch a piece of elastic, this can reach a certain point and must then contract again. Similarly, in a sense, we stretch the moon powers to a certain point at which we must return. This is accomplished in the third stage of sleep. The moon forces, which are in general intimately connected with leading the soul and spirit into the physical world, lead us back through the second stage to the first again. You see, all the powers of initiative we possess in our thinking and feeling during waking life are the after-effect of the fixed star experience during sleep. All the powers of thinking and feeling we bear in us as powers of synthesis as the powers of wisdom and intelligence 
are an after-effect of the planetary experience. But what streams into daily life from our nightly experience of the cosmos has to pass through the body. The fixed star experience quivers into our waking life via the transformation of nutrients. The nutrients in our body would not reach the brain in a way that enabled us to develop powers of initiative if this whole process were not fired by our nightly experience of the fixed stars. And we would be unable to think rationally if our blood circulation and breathing during the day were not informed by the after-effects of our planetary experiences. Such things are always only drawn in rough outline, and generally true. In the case of people who suffer from severe insomnia, seemingly contradicting what I have described, we have to study and explain the associated abnormalities. If we properly grasp these truths, there is no contradiction here. But such general truths allow us to explain fully each individual instance. We can only understand the real nature of the human being if we become fully aware that we do not live only within the skin of our physical body, but also in the whole world. It is just that our life within the whole world is hidden from ordinary awareness. In waking life, this is greatly dulled. At most in our general sensitivity to light, we can experience something of our involvement in all the life of the cosmos, and perhaps in other albeit very dim feelings, we can sense our rootedness in the cosmos during waking life. Yet all such intimations fall silent so that we can elaborate our individual consciousness during the day and so that we are not disturbed by what plays into our experience from the cosmos. During the night this is reversed and then we experience the cosmos, albeit an after-image of cosmic experience. But it is a faithful reflection of it, as I have described, a really cosmic experience. And because we must pass through this cosmic life at night, our waking consciousness is dulled and dimmed in consequence. As humanity continues to evolve, human beings will increasingly live their way into the cosmos, A time will come when we feel ourselves to dwell in sun, moon, and stars, in the same way that at present we are aware of being on earth. And then we will look back to earth from the cosmos in the same way that we now look out into the cosmos from the earth during waking life. But the kind of perception we then have will be a very different one. Anyone who honestly desires to grasp the full scope of evolution must be aware that human consciousness is itself involved in evolution and that the bodily consciousness that we possess at our current stage of development is a transitionary transitionary stage toward another form of consciousness, which in fact is nothing other than the sole reflection of realities we already experience every night. And that soul is spelled S-O-U-L, readers aside, against Steiner. We need these because our waking life can be truly sustained only by their after-effect. Our further evolution will consist in this. The unconscious at work in us today 
will become our possession as conscious awareness also during normal life. For this to happen, though, people will need to find their way into spiritual science. For just as we have to go in a certain direction when we swim, so our ordinary consciousness today needs a direction in which to go. We cannot simply let ourselves be carried, as is the case when we practice ordinary cognition. We need a direction, and this can only be given by anthroposophic, spiritual science, since it reveals to the extent necessary today things already living in human beings, of which they are as yet unaware. They need to receive this into their awareness, for otherwise they will have no real experience of progressing in the cosmos. Today I have described part of what is today discarded from ordinary knowledge and relegated to the concept of the unconscious. In my next lecture, similarly progressing from unconscious states we pass through in sleep, I will try to describe the human experiences that underlie birth and death. The end of lecture one.